Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. Welcome to the second instalment of our discussion with the Head of Shore and Partners Research, Mr. Andrew Hines. Let's get straight into it. So, staying with energy, you've got the oil and gas markets, which have been quite strong since uh, you know, the depths of COVID when the oil price collapsed. Um, you've now got the uh, Morrison government suggesting, well not suggesting, saying that we're going to build a, um, a gas-fired plant in in the Hunter Valley, so there's a real push in gas, and they're blaming industry for not making the moves first, so that they had to uh, they had to make the decision to build it. But there does seem to have been a clear lack of um, effort in developing new um, reserves or, or, or accessing new reserves in the oil and gas market over the course of the last five years, not just since COVID, but over the last five years. Does that set us up for what I? have been expecting would be an ultimate spike in the oil and gas price or is there such a push towards renewables that that's not not going to happen uh, i think very very clearly the former I, I'm, I'm actually really bullish oil prices uh, and it would not surprise me if we see oil prices heading towards a hundred dollars a barrel or, or, or higher in the not too distant future because of exactly what you're, you're mentioning that the lack of investment in oil in the last really five years has been extraordinary. People are not exploring for it. They're not um, developing it. Um, you know, we've had that, that incredible growth in the US shale industry um, in, in the last 10, 15 years, which has become a big swing producer. You know, but a lot of that's uncommercial. It's, you know, it's, it's peeling off now. The level of investment in drilling and shale has come off. So what was the, the, the cost of production? No one ever actually was able to land on a cost of production with shale weather, but it was supposed to be around 70 bucks a barrel. Is that right? Well, it's... There's a difference between the cost of production and the incentive price to get people to drill new wells. Right. Um, so you know, once you've got a well producing, your cost of production you know, can be can be very low. It's the, the, the big issue with oil and gas is the capital cost of developing the, the, the fields in the first place. I mean, oil and gas, more than any other commodity, needs continual investment, otherwise it declines. You know, if you go and open up a new iron ore mine that's producing 100 million tonnes a year of iron ore, it'll do that for 40 years. If you go and open up a new oil reservoir um, and it's producing... You know, five million barrels a day of oil, just not, obviously not, not going to be that much, but um, that will do that for two or three years and then it'll decline. It'll decline really quickly. You know, your average oil mm. and gas field declines once it goes into its decline phase at around you know, 10 to 15% per annum. So if you're not continually reinvesting in oil as a commodity, the supply side is going to, is going to come off reasonably quickly. You know, it's interesting now with oil that the demand for oil is is almost back to pre-COVID mm, levels, mm. even without the global aviation industry um, you know, back at full, full levels. Aviation is about 10% of, of global um, yeah. uh, fuel demand. Um, so there's, there's, there's another step up in oil demand, I think, coming next year as, as the world starts to, to travel again and aviation gets back to where it was. So, you know, I'm not saying that oil demand is going to go off to the races because clearly the electric vehicle thematic is also hitting... hitting you know, the tipping point right now, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. But if you pencil in oil demand at 100 million barrels a day flat for the next 10 years, the issue is not demand, it's the supply. Where is the supply of oil going to come from mm-hmm. to meet that demand when no one's investing in it and all the existing base um, production starts to starts to tail off? And, so, and gas? 
Gas is a little different because the world is a, is a washing gas. There's, there's lots and lots of gas. I think gas is much more... The issue with gas is, is transportation of it. It's a very localised used commodity other than when you, you liquefy it. So LNG obviously is the way you can get gas into other markets, but it's an expensive process. Um, you know, we've got issues in Australia with um, you know, East Coast gas markets. Are, uh, we're running out of gas from Bass Strait. We're running out of gas from the Cooper Basin. We've got the coal seam gas fields up in Queensland, uh, which they're largely being exported, and um, you know, it's, a, it's expensive gas. It's not gas that you can deliver down into the, into the Victorian market, for example, at, at anything like historic gas prices. So you know, gas is much more of a localised issue, I think, than a, than a global issue. Oil is a very, very global issue. So in relation to uh, electric vehicles you just touched on, you know, the, the, the talk, well, some of the statistics, and we've got them from UBS, is that was it 50% of new vehicles produced by 2030 would be electric? Was that the number? Yeah, r- roughly that, yep. So shouldn't that sort of signal weakness in the oil market at some point? Yeah, absolutely. But it's there's, there's a base effect here. So it's if 50% of new vehicle sales in 2030 are electric vehicles, you've still got the installed base of all the existing yeah, um, yep, yep. You know, internal combustion engine vehicles. It's going to take a long time for them to be fully phased out of out of the market. And you know, it, it is clear that you know, go out further years, 2040, 2050, that demand for oil is going to be half where we are today. You know, there, there is a yep. big, there's a there's a fall off coming at some point. But it, I think people underestimate you know the um, the stickiness if you like of the existing demand levels given the existing fleet of, 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 of internal combustion engine uh, uh, cars the biggest issue for oil demand for automation and automa- automotive cars in the uh, in the short term is actually not EVs it's that the uh, internal combustion engine cars are becoming more efficient they're burning less less oil that's been yeah, the, right, that's right. been the biggest um, pullback yeah. in oil demand over the last period has been more efficient engines in in really? combustion wow. engine wow. cars yeah I would have thought that more cars would have accounted for any drop-off in... Well, that's exactly what's happened. So, you know, you've then got, you know, growing world, particularly in the developing nations, who they all want to have the, the vehicles that, um, that we've had. And, you know, they're not naturally leaping into electric mm-hmm. vehicles because the infrastructure is not there for them yet. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're still selling you know, combustion engine vehicles. To... Yeah, well, that's a good point, isn't it? It's not like you can... There's spots to fill up your battery everywhere around the around the roads on the Monash. Well, in Australia, we're, we're lagging behind, Ben. I mean, the, the, we don't have... Our government hasn't set the policies in place for us to adopt electric vehicles in the same way that's happening in some of the other countries. So we are lagging behind. But Australia is, is naturally a difficult place for EVs to, to penetrate because unless you're just driving them around the city, and a lot of people just do that, um, mm. you know, if you want to jump in your car and drive to Sydney or when, you, know, you can just drive out to Ballarat if you're living in Victoria... You know, are you going to worry about being able to charge your vehicle somewhere? How are you going to mm. charge it? So yeah. we don't have that infrastructure in place, and it's going to take a long time for that to come. So penetration of EVs in Australia, I think, will be a lot lower than what you're going to see in, in Europe and the US. And what what do you... Oh, is, I probably won't know this, but what, what do you reckon the percentage of cars on the road around the world, including Europe, which is far more advanced than us, would be electric now, Today, or at least hybrids? I don't know the exact number, but I, I, look, I would guess it would be... Six seven percent. Okay. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah. Okay. It's it's not zero, but it's I'd, I'd be surprised if it's over ten percent. But I could be wrong. Geez, that's a big kick, though. If it, to think that you know, if UBS's numbers are right, that we're going to go to fifty percent of new cars being produced 
being electric and we're sort of running at let's say five to ten percent now yeah what are we 2021 it's not far away yeah but again it's the base effect so if of new vehicle sales you've got to think about how many new cars are sold each year compared to the existing fleet yeah. of vehicles mm. so yes 50 percent of new cars might be electric but that might only be i don't know what the number is but it might only be one percent of the existing uh, cars on the road uh, yeah okay so the Obviously, it's it's going to be a significant part of the future. We haven't even touched on autonomous vehicles. That's another interesting point. But um, you you were talking about lithium earlier and, and the the, um, the commodities that are required for the batteries and the and the bits and pieces within the electric vehicles themselves. Where do you think's the best play? Like which is which of them? Whether it's a lithium or a nickel or a copper, which is the one where you can see there being the best upside as a result of lack of supply, increasing demand, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Look, it's it's a difficult question to answer because there's a difference between demand and supply and then what the price does. The, the, the demand for lithium is clearly going to go up a lot. Um, I think most projections would see lithium demand 10 times what it is today within 10 to 15 years. So, true. you know, mm. extraordinary levels of demand growth. But lithium is not a particularly scarce commodity. Um, and so there's no reason to believe that the lithium price should be elevated um, in perpetuity. It doesn't mean that you'll get periods when demand and supply get out of balance with that sort of you know, explosive growth in demand and therefore the price of lithium goes up a lot. We saw that in 2017, 2018, obviously. So, you know, I, I think you want to have exposure to all these commodities. I think everyone's portfolio, investment portfolio should have exposure to this thematic. It's, a, it's a clearly a big thematic. So lithium, nickel, cobalt... Uh, uh, you know, three of the three of the big ones. Nickel um, is you know interesting in that uh, you know, nickel is is a commodity that's largely driven by the stainless steel market at the moment. Seventy percent of all nickel goes into producing stainless steel. Mm. Um, only about five or so percent of nickel goes into batteries at the moment. But all the growth is coming in the battery space, and there's a particular type of nickel that's required for batteries, which is the scarcer uh, nickel that's around. So you've got lateritic nickel and you've got nickel sulfides. And so you need to know the difference between the two. Um, there's a big company called uh, Ting Chang in China, a big stainless steel company, believes that they've cracked the code to be able to I heard that, um, yeah. convert one form into the other and, and have lateritic nickel being produced into a, into a nickel mat and then back into nickel sulfate to, to be used in batteries, uh, which if true, then you know, the, the, the investment case around nickel is, is not as strong as it, as it mm. might have been. However... Mm. You know, I think there's a lot of hot air in their um, in their commentary, and you know they have a vested interest in talking the nickel price down, being a major consumer of nickel. So, um, you know, the cost of actually going through that conversion path might be might be very very high, and it's not a very green process either. And that's the other thing to consider here is that the underlying thematic behind all this is is clean and green. Mm, it's yeah. you know, electric vehicles is about taking emissions out of out of the, out of the world. There's not much point doing that if all your nickel is being sourced in a very dirty carbon-intensive yep. process, yep. which is what the lateric nickel process is. I know, it's is. funny, isn't it? Where do you stop? I mean, okay, we're, we're mining the nickel to produce the electric vehicles, which are which are green, but the amount of uh, pollution that's required in accessing the nickel, and then you've got the term that people use, which is um, coal-fired electric vehicles. Yes. Because you're plugging it into the wall, which is uh, coal-fired powered. So, well, yeah. We saw Elon the other day talking down Bitcoin, going off on a tangent there, but he, he talked it down because it was too expensive to mine. Um, or sorry, not. It oh, was that's right. Great. It was too energy intensive. Therefore, it was yeah, it was too dirty. Yeah. So it's. A, now, wasn't that Kelly Slater had a go at him about that? I think was, everyone has a go at him, but he's yeah. Anyway. Yeah, there, I think there was there was some comment that um, the 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 energy required to produce. 
Bitcoin each year is more than most European countries are consuming in their energy consumption. Wow. So wow. It, I didn't realize it was that high. It's, it, it's an extraordinary amount of energy is being allocated to mining Bitcoin each year, which is obviously makes Bitcoin a very environmentally unfriendly. Again, more energy is required to mine these Bitcoins than the energy required yeah. in Europe. So not, not total Europe, but some smaller European countries consume less energy wow. than Jeez. is consumed mining Bitcoin each year. So it's an, it's, it is actually an incredibly energy intensive process. And if it's not clean energy, then clearly it's a dirty currency. So mm. that's that was the you know, the up and down of Bitcoin with uh, with Elon Musk was uh, you know he was uh, he was a big Bitcoin proponent obviously late last year and he bought yep. Bitcoin um, actually Tesla I think in their first quarter result that the, the bulk of their profit in the first quarter was their Bitcoin profit, profit on Bitcoin I know. Um, and then someone's obviously been in his ear telling him that it's a very dirty currency, energy intensive, and he's he's changed his mind and he's isn't that scary? Yeah. Wow. Can I, can I just circle back on the oil? We, we discussed a while ago about the um, the uses of, of oil, and you know we're talking about using it in cars and aviation. What what is the percentage? Um, have you got any sort of update on the percentage used in those different areas? Yeah, look, it's it's roughly half the world's oil is used in in transportation. So you know that's why I say when when everyone's when when internal combustion engine cars are gone in 2045, 2050, you know, half the world's oil demand will be gone. Ten um, percent aviation, about twenty-five percent would be uh, um, you know, chemicals, plastics, um, yep. uh, and then there's there's a whole bunch of oil use for um, you know, industrial purposes in in buildings and fuel and heating purposes. So, yep. um, okay. yeah, shipping, bunker fuel, aviation fuel. Um, so I say aviation is about ten percent. It's hard to see how you're ever going to replace jet fuel. I mean, it's hard to see. I know the, um, the the aviation industry is is experimenting with um, alternative um, you know, biodegradable fuels, you know, different different sources, and experimenting with electric um, planes. But yeah, it's difficult to see that being a um, wow. What about shipping? Is there is there any move to get um, shipping on, on an electric basis, something like that? Uh, yeah. Uh, look, there there are, there are some some early technologies around hydrogen, which are. Um, you know, hydrogen may well become a, 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 an alternative fuel source for things like shipping. If you can, big problem with hydrogen. So hydrogen is a clean burning fuel. The big problem with hydrogen, though, is it's how do you, how do you transport it and store it? And so all the work on hydrogen really is around transportation and storage options. And so there's some interesting companies doing interesting things around turning hydrogen into, into salt form, so you can you know, move it around in a in a, in a solid form rather than a, as, a, as a gas or or a or a, or a liquid. Yeah, okay. All right. I remember doing some work with Clarkie, who's one of our energy analysts, and he was going on about the um, comparison of the cost of hydrogen compared to, say, gas. And it's just it's just so far more expensive. It's so far off the uh, comparison that it's not even worth considering at this point. But I suppose at some point, so is solar and so is wind and, you know, they oh, just come it, down as time Absolutely. Passes. So scale matters. Yeah. Um, yeah. And electric vehicles are the same. So, you know, the barrier to entry of electric vehicles to a large degree is the cost of the vehicles. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you want to go and buy a family sedan and it's a pure electric vehicle, you know, you're paying significantly more than you are for, for an internal combustion engine. So, you know, we might all, you know, morally want to go and drive electric vehicles and reduce emissions but when it comes you know time to open your wallet up and pay the pay the money yeah. we're all balancing budgets and people will buy the cheaper car yeah. 
And nuclear? Any any thoughts on nuclear? I mean, we've we've seen the uranium price kick recently. It's now, which absolutely staggers me, the way the mentality of markets change. Nuclear is green now, whereas previously it was the dirtiest of all energy uh, producers. But we've started to see a lot of the big money coming into the to the nuclear space, and it's enabled a number of these smaller companies to raise money at increasingly higher and higher prices. Is that for yours? Is that the solution for for clean energy for energy production outside of cars around the world going forward? It has to be part of the solution. Absolutely. Look, there's there are no there's no way that countries like China, US are ever going to become carbon neutral without nuclear being a big part of that. Mm. You're not going to do that with solar and wind. Um, it, it, nuclear has to be a significant part of part of that base. So, and I think um, governments around the world are recognising that. So your comment about you know, nuclear now becoming clean and green is exactly right. You know, Joe Biden, who's just you know, stepped into the White House in the US, you know, there was nervousness around nuclear that you know, he would be, be negative nuclear. He's come in very pro-nuclear and the US are now extending the lives of all their nuclear reactors. They may well start building new ones. I haven't seen that yet. But you know, China is building new reactors. Um, mm. India are building new reactors. The Middle East are building reactors, would you believe? You'd think Middle East is all uh, fossil fuels and, and oil and gas. Wow. But you know, there, are, there are new reactors being built in places well, like Saudi and uh, uh, UAE. So, they're probably um, aware they're, they're not going to have oil forever either. You know, They're, they're draining their supplies yeah. pretty quickly. Japan, you know, which had the horrible Fukushima mm. um, accident in, in 2010, 2011, um, you know, they're now restarting their, their nuclear fleet. You know, they can't rely on coal-fired power stations um, forever and they know they need to decarbonise and nuclear has to be part of that. So look, I, I'm actually quite positive on the nuclear sector. I think the um, you know, the, the demand is not going to be astronomical, but it's it's now stopped falling post-Fukushima and it started to tick yeah. back up again. And if you pencil in you know, 2 3 4% growth each year in nuclear demand, you'll probably be pretty close to the mark. So it's not huge growth, but it's it's growing again for the first time. And the issue with, with nuclear is that you know, post-Fukushima, there hasn't been really any investment in, in new uranium capacity and the industry has been living off stockpiles of, of uranium post-Fukushima, which are now coming to an end. Um, you know, the world consumes each year about 180 million pounds of, of, of uranium in their nuclear reactor fleet. Um, is currently only producing around 120 million pounds of, of uranium, so there's a shortfall each year of about 60. Um, and at some point, that shortfall has to be met by a new primary supply. So... Uh, when you look at the the cost of mining uranium and getting it out of the ground, um, you know, guys like Paladin that we cover, you know, they need a uranium price up around fifty to sixty bucks a pound for them to justify reopening their Langer Hydric operation. Yeah. Yeah. Price today is thirty, so you know, the, the supply just won't be there unless the uranium price is probably double where we are now. And is that a quick um, sort of turn the keys and, and you know, get back to mining, or is it a, a long process to, to get back there? Oh, it, it varies by by uh, company. There, are, you know, Langer Heinrich with with Paladin is actually a reasonably quick um, restart. It's about a twelve month process once they say yes to, to when they can be mining again. Mm. Uh, but there's a bunch of greenfields developments, which you know, you're not going to uh, get a uranium mine from scratch no. producing uranium within. Uh, you know, it's going to take three or four years to get that to get that done. Yeah. Okay. So we're sort of hearing a lot about supply getting um, in the, when the prices are falling you and you can't just start supply with a lot of these commodities or all of them really it's Absolutely. just it's hard just to turn the key and, and at the end of the day out. commodity markets are self-correcting upside and downside that's what causes cycles when mm-hmm. when supply um, falls short of demand price goes up 
that higher price then incentivizes new supply or it, or it discourages demand. Yeah. And so it corrects again. And then what normally happens though is that there's lags in the system, as you've just pointed out. So when the lag is in the new supply coming, taking three years, the new supply arrives, prices you know, are already then correcting and yep. next minute you're into a down cycle mm-hmm. again and, and then people have to start closing mines or yep. know, demand goes up because you get substitution impacts happening. So you know, that's what causes cycles in these commodities. And you asked the question before about a super cycle. And you know, yes, we're in an elevated cycle right now, but no one, over a long duration, no one is going to make a lot of money in commodity markets. You know, commodity markets, by definition, will will just make their cost of capital over over a long period of time, and it means they're trading markets. You know, you need yep. to trade the be long when when you see those supply demand shortfalls occurring, and then uh, don't be the last one holding the baby when uh, when things are coming back into balance. And yep. you know, my advice to investors right now is, you know, it's very tempting to look at the iron ore market and say, well, two hundred and thirty bucks a ton, Fortescue swimming in cash, Rio's printing money. That's right. Um, and but you never own resource stocks for dividends um, because the capital losses will kill you on the dividend side. I wouldn't own iron ore stocks right now. Yeah, you know, including you know, BHP. You might have some exposure, and you might own because BHP. it's got other commodities. It's got other commodities, yeah. and that yeah. might be a safe you know to, to pick up your dividends in the short term and uh, have some exposure. But you know, just think about it. If 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 we're right that iron ore in say three years time is back at sixty dollars a ton. What are the share prices of BHP reinforcing mm. going to be in three yeah. years' time? Substantially lower than where we are now. Indeed. Nobody can pick the timing of that. You know, we, we all think we're forecasting what's happening. The short-term commodity forecasting is, is just fraught with all sorts of dangers, and we get it wrong all the time. Yep. Um, so my advice is just, you know, we're at an elevated point in the iron ore cycle. You want to be structurally short iron ore names right now. Uh, oil, I think we're in a, in, a, in a low point. You want to be structurally long oil. Uranium, we're in a low point. You want to be long uranium, and things like copper and nickel and lithium, you probably want to be long right now, where supply demand's out of balance and it's going to be going up. So just on, just to round out, I'll, I'll let you go in about two seconds. As far as uranium's concerned, it's now green. Nuclear's green. Yeah. What are we doing with all the used rods? So nuclear fuels actually, it's a tiny, tiny amount of waste. Um, so. That's the big problem with, with nuclear is what do you do with the waste? Um, so you, do, you need to store it. And the problem with it, obviously, is it's radioactive for you know, thousands of years beyond when it's being used. So um, it's, not a, it's not a massive problem because it's not a huge amount of volume. Um, so you know, there's not a lot of waste. It's just very nasty waste. So you, you said, what, what are we consuming, 180,000 pounds? 180 million pounds. 180 million pounds. Of, of uranium a year goes into these reactors. What and comes out? Like, is I, said, I don't know what the number <laughs> is, Ben, um, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a massive problem in a volume sense. It's a problem in, in the sense of nobody wants nuclear waste buried in their backyard, obviously. Yeah, of course. So we need to find places to dispose of it where... Yeah, the middle of the outback in Australia would, would be one. Um, and, you know, there is a school of thought that says we're, we're one of the world's major uranium exporters. Why don't we um, reverse that and, and have the uh, the spent fuel coming in and buried in the, you know. Yeah. It's like the injecting rooms in Victoria. Where <laughs> not, not near my not, house. Not near no, we need no, it, no, but not right. near my house. Yeah. Um, and what, what percentage of the world, I, I think Europe's pretty good, isn't it? But what percentage of the world is run on nuclear at the moment, do you think? So I think that... Off the top of my head, there's about 30 countries that have nuclear reactors. Um, the average electricity generation for those 30 countries is about 20% of their electricity gets generated by nuclear. The biggest is France. So France, 
about 70% of their electricity is nuclear. Um, the biggest consumer in the world is the US. Um, uh, they consume about a third of the world's uranium, but only about 30% of their electricity is nuclear at the moment. Um, the, the, the outlier on the downside is China. So China is um, only about 5% of their domestic power is nuclear generated. And that's why we're seeing massive growth in China in nuclear, because you know, that will come up to, you know, if it comes up to the 20% of, uh, of their domestic electricity being, being nuclear generated, well, then there's an enormous growth in the nuclear fleet in, in mm-hmm. China coming. That would have to be an inevitability to, to some degree, given it because of the cost of it, the clean, uh, how clean it is. Oh, look, if, if, if Xi Jinping is genuine with his pledge that China will be carbon neutral by 2060, um, and there are doubts about that, but if he is, well, then you know, they're going to have to stop burning coal and start mm. uh, investing in nuclear capacity, absolutely. Would he... I'm just trying to think. Would, would there be an issue as far as supplies concerned? Do they have access to supply from like-minded countries? Uh, it's an issue for them. So, the, the, you know, the, China is not naturally endowed with a lot of uranium resource, and so, you know, they're investing in Africa. Um, mm. They've bought mines in Namibia. Um, they're a part owner of the of the Paladin Langer Heinrich mine. They own 25% of it, CNNC. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, he's probably thinking now he's looking at things like iron ore and, you know, these supply disruptions that he's dealing with, well, he'd probably only pursue nuclear energy if he could be confident that they'd have a regular, reliable supply at a reasonable price. Mm. All right. um, Look, we've taken almost an hour out of your time. Thank you very much for joining us. There's a million other things I want to go through with you, but if it's all right (laughs) with you, I might steal you another time in the next next few months. But thank you again for coming and uh, having a chat with us. And thank you to everyone for listening to this interview. If you've got any queries about this discussion or require any other information, give us a call on 9268-1110. Shoot us an email or jump onto our website at morrisseygroup.net. Andrew, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ben. Enjoy your week. Thank you. The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shore and Partners Limited, ABN 24003-221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.